0: Hello. Welcome to Documents in Detail, a webinar and podcast series that explores the core documents of American history. Today, we are joined by our host, John Moser of Ashland University and panelist Stephen F. Knott of the United States Naval War College and Dan Monroe of Millikan University. This is the second of three episodes devoted to an in-depth look at the history of American foreign policy. So, what do we get when we combine expansionist national sentiments, a dominant executive with a broad understanding of his presidential war powers, and a fawning national press corps? Why do we get the Mexican War? Join us as we dissect Henry Clay's market speech and attempt to tease out his critique of the war and of America's nascent imperial ambitions.
1: Good evening ladies and gentlemen. My name is John Moser. I am professor of history and chair of the Master of Arts in American History and Government program at Ashland University. I'd like to welcome you all to another edition of Documents in Detail, Teaching American History's webinar series in which we bring together thoughtful scholars to have a conversation about historically significant documents. We encourage all of you joining us tonight to participate in that conversation by submitting questions via the Q&A box. Please, the Q&A box, not the chat box, so I don't have to monitor both of them. Uh, We'll try to get to as many of those questions as possible. Within the next week, you will be receiving an email. That email will contain links for further reading, as well as a link to the archived video and audio from tonight's program. The speeches, letters, and other writings that we're using for this year's webinars are all drawn from the various volumes of our core document series. Those are available at the Teaching American History's extensive, indeed voluminous document database located at (laughs) pah.org. The subject of tonight's program comes from the volume on American foreign policy to 1899. I am holding it here. Edited by Steve Knott. The document we'll be talking about is Henry Clay's Market Speech of 1847. And to help discuss it are Steve Knott himself. He is soon to be retired as professor in the Department of of National Security Affairs at the United States Naval War College, as well as Dan Monroe, who uh, I'm fairly sure is not actually in San Francisco. He is Associate Professor of History and Chair of the Department of History and Political Science at Milliken University. Uh, both of these gentlemen are extremely popular faculty members in Ashland University's Master's Program in American History and Government. <laughs> so, gentlemen, Steve, Dan, very, really glad that you are here tonight. Um, first of all, Steve, you are the editor of this volume, so I'm going to direct this question to you. Why, having edited one of these volumes, I know that could be kind of agonizing because you want to include all sorts of stuff, but you're limited, and and we we like to keep these volumes short. What was it that made you decide that this this particular document makes the cut?
2: Well, thanks, John. Uh, Thanks, everyone, for joining us tonight. I've always been something of a fan of Henry Clay, and since I served as the editor of this volume, I thought he should get some space, <laughs> uh, but in a more, on a more serious level, I'm sure most of your listeners, our listeners, are aware that Clay was such a significant figure during the first half century of the 19th century here in the United States, uh, but in case you're not that familiar, he is somebody I think that teachers and interested American citizens should be aware of. I mean, the guy's resume was incredible. Secretary of State under John Quincy Adams, uh, Speaker of the House for a time, United States Senator from Kentucky, five-time presidential candidate. Uh, He was sort of the Harold Stassen of his day, uh, (laughs) although not with Stassen's uh, god-awful toupee, and certainly a a more (laughs) substantive person than Harold Stassen. (laughs) Um, but this particular document that we're focusing on tonight, the market speech from November 1847, uh, I felt should be included for, in addition to the fact that I want, wanted Clay to get some airtime, um, there's an interesting discussion in there about war powers and about the role of the president vis-a-vis Congress in terms of war powers. Now, I have to con- confess Uh, This was an enormous, this was a lengthy speech, so I chopped a lot of that out, and if I ever do a revised version, I may put that part back in, Uh, but Clay was a firm believer uh, that Congress needed to play a more assertive role in terms of the, the direction of the war, and also in terms of the aftermath of the war. Was the United States going to annex of large portions of Mexico, if not the entire country itself, as a few Americans were advocating. So there's the war powers question. There's also, I think, a persistent theme throughout American foreign policy as this nation began its westward expansion. And it began to become a colonial power of sorts. Uh, The question of whether we were betraying our founding ideals, uh, whether the United States, was becoming more like an old world power in terms of its desire to acquire land and to some extent in terms of its um, occupying territory uh, that was inhabited by people who were not Americans. And Clay seems very concerned that we are betraying the ideals of the founding um, through this expansionist frenzy that he blamed in part on Polk and Polk's party, the Democratic Party. Clay was also concerned, of course, with the staggering debt, in his view, that would be accumulated from this war and from what he expected to be a a protracted occupation. And he was also concerned about, if you have a protracted occupation, you're going to have to have an enormous standing military. And the members of that standing military present something of a threat Uh, to the American government itself, perhaps, when they return from their occupational duties. And then again, the last thing I'll mention very quickly, and it's tied in with a lot of what I just said, the whole question of imperialism. Uh, And you see here in Clay's argument against imperialism, a lot of what's going to come out later in the 19th century, during the McKinley years especially, this question of whether so-called lesser races that's that's them not me saying that uh, are capable of participating in the american experiment due to their religious differences due to their language differences cultural differences etc is it possible for darker skinned predominantly catholic members of a country like mexico to be incorporated into the united states and clay's answer seems to be no based on these racial and religious grounds. So that's why I chose it, John. I think Dan, to... I, think,
1: Dan I, uh, I, I, I don't know if there's anything you would care to add to that. You are not editor of the volume, but uh, anything you would say along those lines?
3: I probably should turn my microphone on before I start pontificating. I I would just, uh, I think it's a magnificent volume. Uh, Steve's done a a superb job, um, as he always does. And I want to congratulate him, too, on the success of his Kennedy book that just came out, uh, which is doing doing very well and should do very well. Uh, The only thing I would add is I think that uh, when I read the market speech, what I see is, uh, the kind of continuing debate between the Whigs and the Democrats over Republicanism, small R Republicanism. You know what? What's the def, you know what's how do how do we define our republic? And you see Clay making the case that expansionism is fraught, as Steve outlined, is fraught with peril to the longevity of a republic. You know, it can lead to a military dictatorship. You know, Clay says, "Well, how are we going to govern Mexico? We'll have to have an army of a hundred thousand men down there." And, you know, are we, we going to run it like the Rom- Romans ran their empire? And look what happened to them. <laughs> you know, they ended up falling into a military dictatorship, whereas Polk and Jackson and the Myrmidons the of Jacksonianism argued, you can never have enough land. The more land that we absorb, the better off everyone concerned because we're spreading liberty wherever we go. And we're creating a nation of farmers. And republics have an organic life, just like uh, people. So uh, the agricultural stage of existence is the youthful stage of nationhood. And so the longer we preserve that before we move into industrialization and a country dominated by giant cities, which is the end stage (laughs) of national life, the better. So acquiring land is a good thing. Um, and, and I think that, you know, as far as Polk goes, I think that was his, you know, ideologically, you know, young Hickory, I think he was very, very much in tune with that as far as land acquisition.
1: So maybe you could say a bit about the, the context of this speech, what state, obviously the war is going on. What's going on at, 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 this moment that encourages him to give this, this address?
2: Uh, Terrific question, John. Uh, Look, the war begins. So this speech is November 1847. This is well into the war. Uh, The United States declares war on Mexico on April 25th, 1896. And again, we're talking here, excuse me, 1846. And we're talking here about November 1847. So the war has been well underway and the reason your question, I think, is so important, John, uh, in part is due to the fact that Henry Clay's son, uh, Henry Jr., I guess, uh, it has already been killed in this war. Uh, I believe he's a colonel in the Kentucky militia, and he dies in February 1847. Uh, I don't want to, you know, it's, you always have to be careful when you engage in a sort of psychoanalysis of historical figures. But that had to have had an impact on Clay's thinking about the war. Prior to his son's death, he had issued some statements in support of the war. And I can only think the tragic loss of his son, his namesake, uh, I believe at the Battle of Buena Vista, if I'm not mistaken, Uh, rocked this man to the core. By the way, at this point, Henry Clay is a private citizen. Uh, He has left the United States Senate. He was defeated in 1844 when he runs for president as the Whig candidate. So he's gone back to Kentucky as a private citizen, but as a prominent private citizen, he's always being asked to comment on the major events of the day. I do think, again, the death of his son and the approach of the 1848 presidential elections, of course, are a factor here in uh, causing Clay to go public in a sense with a more strident criticism, somewhat strident criticism of the Polk administration and raising serious questions about the post war role of the United States in
3: Mexico.
1: Dan, care
3: to add. Yeah, yeah I, I think that's right. I mean, the end of eighteen forty seven is a is a, a time of, well, we're winning, but how do we get out of this? <laughs> you know, I mean what what's the end game here? And there's lots of chin pulling about that on on the part of both the Whigs and the Democrats. Um, I know the Democrats are <laughs> developing a, a strong caucus for all of Mexico. You know, well, we're doing so well, we may as well absorb all of Mexico. Uh, and the Whigs, you know, and, and as Clay says in this market speech, the Whigs' traditional approach to this is, we have enough frigging land. Let's develop that rather than absorb more land and risk all kinds of social chaos. Which, by the way, is exactly is exactly what happened. You know, I often yes. tell my students, you know, one of the great counterfactuals is, what if Clay had won in forty four, and had pursued a much more moderate co- course then Polk's hit-the-gas expansionism. You know, what, what might have happened? I mean, could the Civil War have been averted? I mean, we'll never know, but it's an interesting question. So Clay makes a point of saying in this speech, listen, we've got this immense amount of territory. We should just develop that. And that was the traditional Whig answer to, to expansionism. You know, the Whigs were not necessarily against expansionism, but they wanted it to happen in a kind of peaceful, natural way. Well, of course, we'll eventually become a country that's bounded by both oceans, but let's that let let that process be natural, not violent. Let's not, you know, as Steve pointed out, let's not change the nature, you know, the great the great conundrum, as Clay points out. Let's not change the nature of the country into this, uh, you know, military dictatorship or something that's utterly antithetical to the founding principles by becoming this rapacious imperialist power. I mean, that was the whole point of the American Revolution, was to break away from the rapacious, imperialist power.
2: Just to add to what uh, Dan just said, uh, John, Uh, it's important to note by this relatively late stage of the war, again, November 1847, that some serious doubts have been raised by people like a young congressman from Illinois named Abraham Lincoln, who I'm told is actually in the audience at this speech. Now, Dan Monroe is the ultimate expert on Lincoln, so maybe that's apocryphal. Uh, But I believe we know fairly certain that Lincoln was there. But nonetheless, there are some serious questions being raised by Lincoln and others about the account that was given by President Polk back in the spring, late winter, early spring of 1846 that leads the United States into this war. And of course, Lincoln is the one that is going to push the so-called spot resolutions, wanting to know <laughs> just where it was that this so-called Mexican aggression had taken place. And the fact is that James K. Polk had manipulated the Mexicans into firing the first shot. Had urged Polk had urged General Taylor, Zachary Taylor, to be aggressive, to be probing, to be constantly pushing and squeezing the Mex- Mexicans and in a way, he gets what he wants when there is a bit of a scuffle in this disputed territory. And um, again, these questions by late fall, early winter of 1847 are beginning to gain some traction.
1: Minor question, but but market speech. What what market is this? Where is this taking place?
2: Geez, thanks for asking me a question I can't answer, John. <laughs> I don't know
3: anything I think about Lexington. I, think yeah, Go ahead, yeah. <laughs> I was just going to say all I know is it's in Lexington. Uh, yeah, uh, I and th- there's a um, gosh, you know, I've got so many books in my head, but there's a very fine book that describes. Uh, I think it's Epstein's. Um, um, uh, what is the title of that? I've forgotten. But anyway, anyway Mark Epstein's book. It talks a little bit about the market speech and its location and the fact that uh, Lincoln was probably there. I hope it's not the slave market in Lexington, although I have
2: no idea if that's the
3: case. I don't think so.
2: Okay. Yeah.
1: You mentioned that uh, a lot of this speech, he talks about how horrible it would be if the United States were to annex all of Mexico. This this is a surprise to me. There were people advocating this, uh, and and, uh, this isn't a straw man.
3: No, that that's if if I can just leap in. That's that's very true. Uh, You know, um, (laughs) late in the war, there was a significant chorus uh, in, especially in the Democratic press, which was all expansionist all the time. Uh, arguing that the entire country of Mexico should simply be absorbed. You know, Polk, remember Polk initially asked in August of 46 for $2 million for uh, as a kind of indemnity for some territory. I think Polk was more interested in acquiring California than anything else. Uh, but he wasn't, didn't have great ambitions for all of Mexico. Well, now he's got a significant portion of his caucus lobbying for, well, since we've done so well, we might as well absorb all of Mexico. And and I just say something about Polk. Uh, Polk was not was an expansionist, but he was not a rabid expansionist or you know all in expansionist like some of these folks. You know he settled for half of a loaf of the Oregon, for example. You know the expansionist mm-hmm. crowd wanted all of Oregon plus some. You know modern day British Columbia. You know fifty four forty. Polk settles for substantially less than that. And you know when the treaty comes in, he sends it right in. Or you know when you know that arrangement with the Brits, and the same thing with the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, Hmm. that Trist negotiated after Polk told him to stop and come home. (laughs) You know, uh, I've had enough of you. You know, come home. You know, Uh, Trist negotiates it anyway, and it's much more forgiving to the Mexicans than the uh, all or nothing. You know, let's have everything crowd wanted, and Polk sends it right in. So uh, Polk, I think Polk recognized that. Look. Uh, you know we can't absorb that big a matzo ball there's it's fraught with all the problems that clay lays out in the market speech uh so we're, we, we shouldn't do it but yeah i mean the answer to your question john is uh there was a significant uh i mean you look at democratic newspapers in the 47 and 48 uh there's a quite a chorus uh you know i i would not say it's a majority of the party i mean we don't have gallup data so who the hell knows but i i don't think it's a majority but it's it doesn't matter. They are vocal, and there are strong advocates in the Senate for absorbing all of Mexico, which Just I think add, would, have been a, would have been a disaster for the uh, United States and Mexico. Yeah. Go ahead, Steve. I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh, sorry,
2: Dan. Just to add to what Dan said, um, I might encourage your our listeners to, if they have a chance, check out a book called This Vast Southern Empire. Uh, by an historian at Princeton by the name of Matthew Karp, K-A-R-P. And uh, Karp has written, a, and it's a relatively recent book, he's written a terrific count of sort of the slaveholding desire of the Democratic Party being dominated by slaveholders at this time, this desire to truly create a slave empire during the 1840s and 50s. And it echoes a lot of what Dan just said in terms of this zealous desire to acquire territory uh, as much as possible in order to spread the, um, the, the slavery. Uh, Carp's book, I highly recommend.
1: So uh, let's go to a question from one of our uh, attendees. Uh, Richard Rago asks, why does Clay change his views from his Raleigh letter <laughs> to his market speech?
2: Well, again, I'm not sure we can answer that with 100% certainty, but I'm, I tried to at least make the case earlier that it's partly due to the impact of his son's death. Now, I realize I'm out on a limb there a bit. Um, I, I won't say that the evidence for that is overwhelming, but I simply can't imagine any father watching or learning the news of who, someone who is arguably his favorite child uh, killed in, in combat and not having an impact, not having an effect on the way this person thinks about the, uh, the justice uh, and the continuation of this conflict. But I also think in the intervening months after the death of his son, um, in concert with, just, with what Dan just said, the increasing calls on the part of some members of Polk's southern base, uh for for going all the way in a sense uh really chills clay and many other wakes to the core and leads to a kind of uh conversion of sorts
3: yeah i w- I would just add that uh you know clay starts to crawfish uh, on the Raleigh letter uh you know and and this is just to supplement what steve said i i think Steve makes a very perceptive point about the effect of clay's the death of clay's son on clay i mean he was devastated uh and i don't think he ever really got over that uh you know i think his you know he dies in 52 but his health really starts to go downhill after the death of his son i think that uh you know his tuberculosis gets worse i just think that it so i agree totally with that but just i would just add that, uh, you know, Clay in his Raleigh letter, uh, you know, uh, explicitly says he's against Texas annexation and he's opposed to uh, expansionism. And then in the summer of 44, uh, when it starts to harm his presidential campaign, he starts to crawfish a little bit with letters, the so-called Alabama letters, in which he says, well, maybe expand, you know, I'm not necessarily opposed to annexation. I just wanted to be peaceful and I don't want it to be a cause of spell for Mexico uh which only um i think give with with clay's reputation for deals and things like that only you know turned people off uh i actually think i actually think clay was sincere in this i think clay would have yeah. accepted you know clay was a reasonable man i think clay would have said well it's only it's only reasonable texas is populated by americans uh, who want to join the United States. I mean, we have to acknowledge reality. I think Clay probably would have found a way to accept it. But the difference between Clay and Polk was Clay wasn't going to use it as a vehicle for expansionism.
2: John, let me just add, uh, you know, there's there's a thread, thread here that I failed to sort of highlight in the book itself. And again, if I get a second crack at it, perhaps I'll change. But again, one of Plays objections is the extent to which President Polk is wielding his commander-in-chief powers in a very—I um, almost said Hamiltonian, which for me is uh, <laughs> uh, not sure I want to go down that. Path, but yeah, a very assertive, very expansionist manner, and things information is starting to come out again about both the deceptive practices that Polk uh, had engaged in in early 1846, including, by the way, and this is a a story from the Mexican War, from the Polk years, that doesn't get the attention it deserves. But one of Polk's secret initiatives done with no congressional involvement whatsoever was to see in the early stages of the conflict if uh, General Santa Ana who was living in exile in Cuba. If the United States could strike a deal with Santa Ana to get him back into Mexico, and in exchange for helping Santa Ana restore some of the power he once had in Mexico, Santa Ana would give us, give Polk, the the territory that he was demanding. Um, And so this was what today we would call a covert operation Polk gives it the green light. Uh, the blockade of Mexico is lifted for a brief period of time to allow uh, Santa Ana to go back into Mexico. He's welcomed as sort of a returning hero. He does uh, come back into power in a sense. And what does he do? He completely portrays the Americans who were responsible <laughs> for putting him back in a position of power. These kinds of things are starting to seep out. And there's an element of Polk's presidency, what some 20th century historians might have called an imperial presidency, that I think disturbs good Whigs like Henry Clay, like Abraham Lincoln and others, who are very concerned about this growing presidential authority, particularly in foreign affairs.
1: Uh, something A lot of this speech concerns the question of, if we were to take over Mexico, what the heck do we do about the Mexicans? Uh, you know, on the one hand, they're so different from us, they couldn't really be part of our country. On the other hand, we can't rule over them and deny them uh, or, or you know, tax them without their, without their representation. Um, I- I'm wondering, those who did advocate occupying Mexico – did they have an answer for that? Did, did they have an idea what they were going to do with the Mexicans?
3: No, I don't I don't think they did. I think that their you know their their approach was typical uh uh ethnocentrism and uh, ra- assumption of racial supremacy, you know, they'll become kind of like vassals um you know not slaves necessarily but uh kind of like a peasantry or vassal state i mean this is this is what uh why clay's fear about uh you know the the, this the threat to the republic of this whole endeavor uh you know why he expressed those concerns because you know if you if you become a kind of roman state where you have kind of vassals you know vassal countries that are supplying you with uh you know uh, natural resources, while their populace remain in kind of a semi-peasant uh, state, and that's who you are. That's not the raison d'être of the United States, uh, the Natural Rights Republic. So, uh, but it, 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 it's rather chilling if you read um, Democratic newspapers as a period who advocate that kind of all-Mexico thing, because they do have uh, those kind of nasty uh, racialist assumptions. And Clay, you know, to Clay's credit, he found that off-putting. And John, I would just add, if there's sort of a consistent thread
2: throughout the history of American foreign policy, and you guys know this as well as I, we have a tendency not to think through the long-term implications <laughs> of an occupation of a place like, oh, let's say Iraq or Afghanistan or maybe even Vietnam. So this is, Polk is very much, well, not so much Polk, but as Dan says, a lot of members of Polk's coalition were not particularly thoughtful when it came to the long-term implications of the of an occupation of a country as
3: large as Mexico. I wanted to add, too, uh, just in response to uh, Steve's comments on presidential powers, you know, uh, and, it, you know, he, he referred to Lincoln's uh, spot resolution speech, and, you know, this is all of, you know, the, the Whig concern with Polk's actions is all of a piece with the whole reason the Whig Party emerged. Mm-hmm. You know, Andrew Jackson starts to do things, you know, like vetoing more bills than all the previous presidents combined, firing his secretary of the treasury and putting in a stooge in uh, Roger Taney. Uh, he's doing things as a president that, that were considered a way uh, uh, beyond the boundaries of uh, proper mm-hmm. presidential actions. And Polk is building on that legacy. You know, I don't. I don't subscribe to the school that Polk uh, intentionally maneuvered the country into war. What I do think is that Polk was willing to accept war. Uh, you know, he went through this process of trying to negotiate a a, um, a solution to the annexation conundrum of Mexico, and then when they didn't cooperate, well, he was willing to accept the the next step, which was war. Uh, but in doing so, he does this largely. <laughs> You know, I'm Steve is an expert on war powers, presidential war powers. He does this largely on his own and then kind of tells Congress as an after effect. oh, by the way, I've started, you know, this war has begun and and you should ratify it. And it just has to be said that um, and Steve can speak to this better than I. But I think it's a consensus among presidential historians that Polk is a significant marker in this kind yes. of growing uh, ex- executive power. And tendency to regard Congress as kind of an afterthought, which is not the which which is absolutely not the Whig conception, right? I mean, the Whigs were all about Congress being the dominant of the three equal branches, so to speak.
2: Uh, yeah, Dan, there's no question that James K. Polk is is a significant president, uh, and in fact, in those you know frequent polls of presidential greatness, which I know irritate a lot of folks. <laughs> you now Polk does quite well. He's always hovering around the top 10, if not quite breaking into the top 10. And the fact is that he was, uh, in some ways, very much a 20th century commander-in-chief. Uh, he is the exact opposite of James Madison, let's say. So Madison presides <laughs> over our first declared war in a very hands-off manner. And I would say in a very inefficient manner. Polk is very much hands-on. And I mean, he's literally talking with Winfield Scott and others about logistics, about supply lines, about manpower, about feeding this army that is so far from home. This is; These are the kinds of details that James K. Polk as president immerses himself in. And uh, to some extent, this is going to be modeled by a lot of his 20th century uh, successors. The other thing I want to bring up, John and Dan, um, is the political price that the Whigs will pay for seeming to challenge both the men in the field who are fighting the war in Mexico and their commander-in-chief. This war is a classic case study of the power that the president has to wrap himself in the flag and to stifle dissent. And again, Dan can answer this better than I, but Lincoln is gonna pay, I think, a political price for his outspoken opposition to the war. People are begin to question Lincoln's patriotism. And this is one of many examples in American history, again, to repeat myself, but I think it's important, The president has all the cards. And Clay and Lincoln, to their credit, I think can see the dangers associated, uh, uh, the dangers in a republic where people sort of stifle questions, stifle their dissent, rally around the flag for war that had at best, um, you know, questionable, a
3: questionable rationale. Yeah, that's 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 awesome. Go ahead, John. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I was I was going to
1: go ahead and finish your point.
3: Well, I was just going to say, just to add, you know, add to Steve's very good point. And uh, this is an age where the popular press uh, becomes this kind of, you know, thanks to new technology. You have newspapers being distributed all across the United States and they seize upon the opening of hostilities to pump up popular heroes and to laud them and celebrate them like Samuel Ringgold, the artillery officer at uh, Palo Alto, who who was in charge of the so-called flying artillery who would like, they would gallop up between the lines and fire off a bunch of rounds and, you know, blow holes in the Mexican lines and then gallop away. And Ringgold is killed at Palo Alto. And uh, he becomes a kind of national celebrity in death. Uh, Bob Johansson, point I have to give Bob Johansson credit, points this out in his magnificent book on the Mexican War. Um, you know, it becomes a kind of popular uh, pastime to follow the exploits of American troops in Mexico, and so it makes it very difficult. You know, Steve's absolutely right. You know, Lincoln was savagely criticized in his own district, which was the own only damn Whig district in the whole state of Illinois. <laughs> Uh, but it wasn't, you know, the Mexican War w- became was a popular war. I mean, it doesn't just, yeah. it, it doesn't mean that there weren't there wasn't dissent and there weren't people who were strongly against it. But it's carried in the newspapers as as uh, uh, in a very celebratory way, and people get caught up in it. You know, Lincoln was dogged by criticism for that speech for the rest of his uh, natural life. Uh, you know, uh, Douglas in the debates referred to Lincoln as Spotty Lincoln uh you know which has kind of toilet uh connotations referring to the address i mean the democratic newspapers made all kinds of hay over it and writ large to the country uh as steve astutely pointed out the whigs suffered for their opposition to the war i mean they tried to square the circle by saying well we we think polk began this thing in an illegal and and wrongheaded unethical way but we're going to vote supplies for the troops we're not going to leave the men down there without anything, you know, anything in their ammo cartridge, cartridge boxes. But we're also pledged that we do not want to acquire any territory as a result of the war. So they tried to be consistent with their principles. Um, I don't think it worked. <laughs> you know, they tried, they tried to square the circle. They tried to avoid, you know, being outright hypocrites to their credit, but it was never, you know, it was always difficult. And I, and, and, uh, and I think in the end, one of the reasons why the Whigs nominated Zachary Taylor in 48 was they yeah. recognized, well, you know, if we can't, if we can't beat him, we might as well try to yeah. join him. Let's get our own, let's get our own military hero. Let's get our Samuel Ringgold who isn't dead. He's still alive. And let's put him forward as our standard bearer, which worked. Yeah. Excellent.
2: Excellent point, Dan. And of course, uh, Taylor was not known. It's it's, it wasn't clear <laughs> at the time, whether he was a wager. <laughs> what. what or he was, Uh, Nobody had any idea whatsoever, but as you said, Taylor was one of those people that this press that Dan referred to that followed the war closely. Taylor was made something of a hero, old rough and ready. And by the way, (laughs) President Polk uh, became somewhat um, jealous of the attention that was being heaped on generals like particularly Taylor uh, and knowing that perhaps the Whigs would be devious enough (laughs) To nominate Taylor (laughs) in 1848 and defeat defeat Polk's party. Polk, of course, by the way, had committed himself, which is amazing, since this is a Whig stance, to serve only one term and abides by that pledge. But Taylor does win the election of 1848, strictly on the basis, as Dan mentioned, of being a media-created hero. Uh, Not to diminish his accomplishments, but he was presented to the public at large as a war hero.
1: That's really interesting. So uh, we got some questions from participants. Tiffany Fannin asks uh, an interesting question. Uh, Were there other major leaders, and maybe we couldn't, maybe not just limit it to this war, who changed their minds after a war, after losing a friend or loved one? Think of other examples of this. Hmm.
2: I mean, Teddy Roosevelt comes immediately to mind when his son Quentin is killed in the First World War, except he doesn't
3: change. I'm not answering the question because he doesn't change his mind. Uh, wow. That's what I thought, too. I, Teddy yeah. Roosevelt and Quentin came to mind immediately. Uh, uh, but he doesn't, as you say, well, he doesn't change his mind.
2: Look, this this is a bit of a stretch. A great question. Um, having just completed a biography of... Or, a look at President Kennedy's presidency. I will say this: uh, John F. Kennedy, having a brush with death during the Second World War, um, goes on and and writes a series of letters, in private letters to family members at the time, expressing just absolute contempt for war. Not, not that he's he's certainly not in favor of the, the Japanese winning or he wants them defeated, but This is uh, Kennedy was very anti-war. It's an aspect of his life that I think has unfortunately been ignored by historians, by biographers. And I do think Kennedy as president carries that anti-war sentiment, if you will, into the White House. And you see it emerge during crises like the Cuban Missile Crisis. Now, again, where he's the lone voice in the room at various times. Uh, saying we're not going to have any sort of direct military conflict. We're not going to invade Cuba. We're going to look for some other passageway out of this crisis. That's not a case of somebody losing a sibling, although John F. Kennedy does lose his older brother in the Second World War, and that's part of this anti-war sentiment that Kennedy brings into the White House. That's the best I can do with Tiffany's question.
3: The only thing I would add is um, I'm sure there's some folks in the Vietnam era that uh, changed yeah. their minds. I know uh, David Hackworth was a serving officer who, you know, left the service and moved to Australia and then wrote a book condemning the Vietnam War. I'm sure there yeah. are others. I just can't yeah. like like right. like right. you, right. Steve. I can't recall. Good question.
1: Uh, Richard Rago asks: Was there any correspondence? from uh, General Scott to Washington as he was occupying Mexico City along the lines of, what do I do now with it? Uh,
2: Yes, there was, of course, with all the... uh, uh, One has to be aware of the incredible time delays, the length of which it would take for any sort of communication anywhere in Mexico uh, to make its way back to the commander-in-chief. But again, Polk went to great lengths to make sure those lines of communication remained open and tried to stay as uh, well-briefed on the conflict as best he could. Um, In terms of specifics between Scott and Polk, I'm at a loss at the moment to think of any particular recommendations, whether Scott was somebody who felt comfortable making recommendations or whether he merely simply believed his role was to follow orders, and the correspondence consisted of uh, examples of him saying, "Yes, sir." I just don't know enough about it to give a good answer.
3: Yeah, I don't. I I can't recall the correspondence between Polk and Scott, other than it was. Um, I did look at it some years ago, but it's been some <clears throat> years ago, and I didn't look at all, but but it's um, it's often contentious, (laughs) you know, I mean, like Steve pointed out uh, one of the unique things about Polk's presidency was that he was very much a hands-on commander in chief. So, I mean, he was giving uh, instructions to Scott about things like, uh, well, why are you using wagons when mules would be better? Uh, You know, kind of logistical specific details, which, um, you know, is, you know, uh, Scott obviously doesn't appreciate um, given his, uh, you, you know, I mean, he's the uh, the field commander. And, and as Steve pointed out, you have someone who's hunt thousands of miles away and also months removed from his immediate, yeah. you know, by the time you get the letter. So, um, you know, it, it, was, it was one of the problems with Polk's approach was that although I think it was good that he was more hands on than Madison, uh, who was uh, too hands off. Uh you know trespassing anytime presidents trespassed on tactical matters it can be very problematic sure sure and i and
2: I think if Polk had had the technology available, he would have been <laughs> <That's> a micromanager. <laughs> yeah. He would have been Lyndon Johnson picking bombing targets over <laughs> North Vietnam in the white House situation room uh i'm I'm convinced of that let me let me add if I could in in addition to communicating with his military officers in Mexico, Polk had a, a correspondence with a number of American operatives who were working behind Mexican lines for purposes of trying to undermine the Mexican war effort. Uh, and one, one of the name of one of these operatives was a guy named Moses Beach, who was an American journalist who was in Mexico City throughout much of the war under the cover in a sense. I mean, he was a journalist, but he was also on the US government payroll. And part of what he did was to try to influence the Mexican Catholic church to take an anti-war stance to sue for peace. And Moses Beach also worked with Mexican journalists to try to have these people print, you know, we need to strike a deal. We need you know, to undermine the war effort in Mexico, a classic disinformation effort, if you will. And there is correspondence between Moses Beach and various Polk administration officials. Now, whether that went right to President Polk, I can't say with certainty. But my guess is, since Polk was something of a micromanager, he knew exactly what these people were up to.
1: since you mentioned the uh, the catholic church I, I i'm struck by clay's reference to uh, the catholicism of the mexican people it it seems for the mid 19th century to be a remarkably even-handed uh acceptance they think we're wrong we think they're wrong who knows it's up to it's up to god is that in character for clay is there a political reason why he wants to uh, avoid giving offense to catholics or do you
3: know anything about that? I end. would, uh, uh, yeah. I, I would just say that uh, it's in keeping with uh, with uh, Whigism. You know, the Whigs Whigs emphasize social order, and uh, you know, in other words, avoiding conflict. Let's see if we can try to avoid the kind of social disorders. I mean, think of Lincoln's Lyceum address. Well, we're being plagued by mob violence it's because people don't have any respect for the Constitution and the laws. So we need to teach the kind con- to respect for the constitutional laws, beginning with the lisping babe. Uh, you know, that's that's classic Whig ideology. So I don't that's, I don't think, you know, just like the Democrats, I think the Whigs had um, there, you know, there were some nativists and the nativist sentiments is just part of the period. But uh, I think Clay and Lincoln are much more reflective of kind of mainstream Whigism in that they're they're, uh, I think, Protestant but they're not an intolerant Protestantism.
2: Interesting angle on Clay. When he serves as Secretary of State under John Quincy Adams after the so-called corrupt bargain, which, by the way, there was nothing corrupt about, but nonetheless, (laughs) uh, Clay becomes John Quincy Adams, Secretary of State, and he is also interested in the question of Texas, the acquisition of of this territory. And Clay has an agent operating in uh, Mexico who is out there organizing pro-American political clubs, if you will. And the agent is using various existing Masonic lodges. I think it's the York Rite Masons, who, by the way, are on the outs with the Mexican Catholic Church. The Catholic Church has always had a bit of a testy relationship with the Masonic movement, to say the least. And so Clay, as Secretary of State, would have been somewhat well-versed on the power of the Catholic Church in Mexico uh, from his tenure 20 years prior as Secretary of State, where he's in steady communication with this American who was trying to counter the influence of the Catholic Church. By using the pre-existing Masonic lodges located in Mexico. Uh,
1: in connection with that, Jared Painter asks a question that I actually had on my list as well. Uh, what about this invoking the example of Ireland? Uh, this this seemed uh interesting to me as well as to uh as to as to Jared. Was 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 Clay aiming to win support from Irish Americans by drawing this? <laughs> comparison or did he really think the two cases were analogous yeah
2: it's another terrific question it may well have been uh, polit- politically motivated i just i don't know enough about clay's stance vis-a-vis ireland and irish americans or with a Whig attitude towards irish americans perhaps perhaps dan does uh
3: Well, um, I don't know if I can speak to Clay in Ireland, but I can say this. Uh, I mean, this is a period where you have uh, anti-Catholic riots uh, in American cities where there's kind of resurgence of anti-Catholicism. It's very pronounced uh, in in urban areas. Um, But again, you know, Clay and the Whigs, their approach to social disorder is, well, how can we stop this? you know i mean uh we we have strife over slavery as an issue well let's you know uh, clay advocates well we need to come up with some kind of gradual emancipation scheme that eliminates it because slavery's antithetical to the founding but also doesn't cause a kind of social turmoil and chaos and bloodshed that could come from so dramatic a change so there you know and and i, I you have to be careful talking about this because there's you know, some Whigs are not necessarily, um, you know, might are infected with a little bit of nativism. But yeah. I think in general that uh, the Whigs are the, are, are the, I always view the Whigs and Henry Clay as the sober people in the room. You know, you have these Democratic enthusiasts, the Jacksonians yeah. saying, well, let's emphasize emotions. And let's embrace the common man and let's expand and, and there's no boundaries in the United States. You know, the term that you see in a lot of the Democratic newspapers was boundlessness. This is a country with no boundaries. It can go because yeah. it's the, the the ideology of liberty can go everywhere, whereas the Whigs were the chin pullers going, now, wait a minute. <laughs> let's think about the ramifications of what you're advocating. So it's yeah. the same, you know, same thing with the with this kind of religious strife.
2: Now Dan's uh, excellent comments made me think about the during the, the the violence, the anti-Catholic violence that Dan just mentioned, has its roots back in the 1820s and 30s, particularly during the Jackson years, uh, where there are really some horrific instances of, of 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 violence directed against Catholic immigrants. Uh, against, I believe, in one case in Boston, the actual burning of a of a, of a monastery, uh, people killed inside this building. But, you know, part of the whole Whig movement, this is what Dan alluded to, and you, you see this in Lincoln's Lyceum address, right? This lawlessness that's taking, taken hold in the United States during the Jackson era uh, directed against those who are out of step with the majority, uh, be it Native Americans, be it Irish Americans, uh, be it free Blacks in the North, there is this strain in Whig thought, not all, as Dan just mentioned, but this they are sort of the restraining influence against the sort of nativist violent sentiment that makes up, I would say, a substantial portion of the Democratic Party's base. Uh,
1: Christina Byers asked a question, while Going back to your uh, remarks on Lincoln and his criticism of uh, of polks at war making uh, powers, while Lincoln in this context seems to be opposed to what he sees as excessive executive power, he's often accused of doing the same thing during the Civil War. Sure, how do sure. we how do we justify the two Lincolns? Well, I'll, I'll defer to Dan. He's Mr. Lincoln here.
2: <laughs>
3: well, look. um I think you know Lincoln definitely builds. He was a strong president, and I, and I don't think there's any doubt that he builds on the Jacksonian and Polk legacy to exert his presidential powers in a in a uh, in an aggressive way. Having said that, as Lincoln points out in his letter to Corning, or as this Corning when he defends his suspension of the habeas corpus, um, you know, I did what I had to do to maintain the viability of the country. And, and then I stopped as soon as I could, and nothing was harmed. (laughs) You know, no Mm -hmm. one, nothing changed. The country didn't become something else. So I think Lincoln, you know, and Lincoln is very candid, I think, uh, in his defense of his actions as president, where he, you know, he acknowledges the risks that are inherent with the president suspending the risk of the writ of habeas Mm -hmm. corpus, but he also explains the necessity under which he acted, and the fact that he uh, restored the writ as soon as he felt he was able. You know, it just it just bears repeating that that Lincoln revoked uh, Burnside's order suspending the Chicago Times publication, and you know, a, you know, in other words, Lincoln when some of these generals went overboard, mm. and threw you know Van Landingham and these other uh, uh, Copperheads <laughs> in jail. Lincoln uh, springs them and orders orders their release or so when a newspaper suppressed, like the Chicago Times was suppressed, Lincoln orders the, the order lifted. So I, you know, I, I'm, you know, this is this is a, a, a I understand that this is a subject about which people are much interested, including myself, but we don't want we don't want presidents doing things that violate the Constitution and the law. Um, but I don't think Lincoln is, is an example of that. I think Lincoln, Lincoln was faced with extraordinary circumstances and acted with, uh, with great reluctance, but also did what he had to do to maintain the viability of the country. Yeah. I think he
2: also doesn't, Lincoln overturns Fremont's order in Missouri. Yeah. Oh yeah. Right. Look, it seems to me that every time and Dan laid this out beautifully, President Lincoln goes out of his way to link his actions with the Constitution, with the founders. I mean, this man is a lawyer. He has great respect for the rule of law. I just don't see that same effort being made in this instance by James K. Polk or certainly by Andrew Jackson when when he was president. So I do see in Lincoln, yes, yes. He uh, was confronted with an extraordinary situation and took some extraordinary measures, but I also see him going to great lengths and spending a remarkable amount of time trying to justify, trying to make the case for those actions by looking back at the nation's founding document.
1: Well, we're uh, quickly running out of time. Um, Maybe each of you could give us closing thoughts and perhaps recommend something for further reading for those who are interested in this subject
2: well if you're interested in the war with mexico um i would uh recommend uh, i think dan mentioned one earlier but i would recommend a more popular history uh by john sd eisenhower the son of dwight eisenhower Uh, and the title of the book is so far from home the war with mexico it's old now. It's probably 20 or 30 years old at this point. Part of the reason I recommend it is it's easily accessible, but John Eisenhower did his homework. And uh, I also think, you know, if you read it closely, you can get some, you see some little gems, perhaps, some little insights into the Eisenhower way of war. So it's, it's a fascinating book. Yeah, well, I, I could add, sorry. Oh, go ahead. No, no, no please. John S.D. Eisenhower also wrote uh, for the American President Series. Uh, In fact, I've got it right behind me here. Uh, He wrote the biography on Zachary Taylor. And it's, again, a popular history, uh, but it's of Taylor's brief presidency. But it deals quite a bit with Taylor and the Mexican War and touches on the issues, Dan and I mentioned earlier, about Taylor being sort of a media creation of sorts.
3: I was just going to echo your endorsement of uh, Eisenhower's History of the Mexican War. That's a very fine book, and it's very accessible, and uh, I like it a lot. If you want to read more about clay, I think the Heidler's one-volume biography of clay is very good. Dave, I think it's David and Gene Heidler. Yes. Uh, that's just excellent. Uh, now, Robert Remini has written a one-volume his biography of clay. That's very good, too. I think the Heidler's, and, and I love Remini's work but i think the heidler's book is full of insight um it's very engaging uh they're just a really dynamic duo so that's if i was going to pick up one book on henry clay it would be the heidler's uh, biography i enjoyed that immensely i would echo what dan just said the heidler's do a terrific job and they're very nice people too i uh not to you know sound like i'm name dropping or anything but i met them at a conference they just couldn't have been more pleasant so they're great they great are. people great people in addition to being fine historians
2: dan i used to teach with the heidlers at the air force academy, oh, okay. academy so, <laughs> so you
3: know yeah they're friends of <laughs> good people. No, i just i just think the world of them
1: all right well i want to thank both of our panelists steve and dan as well as our participants for their questions uh, if, if you didn't have a chance to take the professional development poll at the beginning of the webinar, would you would you please do so now? Uh, we'll fl- maybe flash it back up here again. Again, the feedback will help us make decisions regarding the types of professional development opportunities we offer. Uh, as a reminder, you will be receiving an email within the next week, which will include a link for further readings, the ones that Steve and Dan mentioned here. It will also contain a link to the archived webinar. Please share that uh, that with your colleagues. Get it out there on social media. Help us spread the word. If you've enjoyed tonight's webinar, please do consider taking an online course or an in-person course in our Master of Arts in American History and Government program. You can, of course, find uh, more information about our offerings, as well as all sorts of other resources for teachers at teachingamericanhistory.org. Our next edition of Documents in Detail will take place on Wednesday, January 18th, when we'll be talking about Carl Schurz's essay Against American Imperialism, uh, again, coming from our core documents volume on American foreign policy to 1899. I am pleased to inform you that joining us will be this same team, Steve and Dan, uh, to talk about that document as well. Thank you again for being with us here tonight. We will look forward to seeing you next month. Until then, from all of us at Documents in Detail and Teaching American History, uh, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. Thank you all. Thanks, everybody.
0: Thanks again for listening to Teaching American History's webinar on Henry Clay's Market Speech. For more information on our webinars, core document volumes, in-person educator professional development programs, graduate programs, and our free document library, please visit us at tah.org.